Family, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 13 today, so if you have a Bible, I hope that you do, please, uh, please make your way to it. First of all, I want to, uh, as you're making your way to Matthew chapter 13, I do want to appreciate and recognize uh, Brother Dale's song choice. Uh, I don't know how well he knew what I planned on teaching and preaching from uh, this morning, but virtually every song that, that he just sang through, um, there was a trace some kind of a scarlet thread going through each song, referring to this morning's text. Um, So as you're going to Matthew 13, this will not, if you've been in church for a while, this will not be an unfamiliar text to you. It is very common, uh, one that many children's Bible studies, uh, Sunday schools, flannel graphs, if you remember flannel graphs, um, have, have done and have taught about. Uh, this is actually a section of Matthew's gospel where he begins to record Jesus' parable teachings. He starts with the parable of the seed, the seed sower, throwing the seed amongst the, the different soils. 25% of the soil is profitable, is positive. The rest is merely the effect of the sower doing his job. And uh, sometimes it falls among the rocky seeds, uh, the ones, the, the, the path, the soil that has the thistles. But sometimes the, the church gets so caught up in the nature and the abstractness of parables that we sometimes miss the very clear and present teaching. So this morning, as we go to Matthew chapter 13, we're going to be in verses 44 through 46, uh, two very brief parables that if we try, we can overcomplicate and try to allegorize too much. But if we simply listen to what Christ is communicating and take it for what he means, take it for what not only he means, for what he means for it to mean, then we will come away, hopefully together as a church body, treasuring Christ above all else. There are two examples that we'll see here in just a moment Um, But before we begin our reading, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know that we just came to you in prayer, and thank you so much for for Brother Dale leading us. Um, As much as we want to pay attention and pray for those who are uh, going through struggles and trials and uh, rehab and physical uh, issues, family issues, uh, financial issues, whatever it may be, Lord, uh, I pray that right now, just for the the next... uh, however long, 30 to 40 minutes or so, Lord, we are able to clearly hear from you. God, that, that is a lot, of, uh, a lot of that is on me, um, to be able to present your word, your insights that you've given me this week based upon your word, and not based upon my own opinions or feelings, but also not only to be communicated through me, but also to be received uh, by our church family. Lord, I'm involved in that. Lord, thank you so much for how you have communicated to me already, uh, not through a mystical connection that I have that they don't, but Lord, through your chosen means of revelation to, to make known to us who you are, what you are like, and who we are because of who you are. So Lord, may we stand for truth, may we stand for your word, and may it be something that the Holy Spirit penetrates even the hardest heart in this room. So Lord, we give you all the glory for whatever comes of this sermon. To your name and to your Son be glory forever and ever. Amen. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like this. 
Jesus says, it's like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Again, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The book of Matthew is the bridge from the Old Testament to the New Testament, not just where it falls in the canon of Scripture, not just where it is placed, but it is the clear distinction between Old Testament, New Testament, from Malachi to Matthew, there's a period of time where God is silent. No prophets, no judges, no word, except what he has already communicated through the prophets, through the law, through the judges. Up until now, it's silent. And here's the thing, it's getting close to Christmas time. And the first time that we see God beginning to communicate again with his people is with a list of names that many of us try to avoid when it begins the book of Matthew. But when you read through the the way that Matthew flows, when you begin to see the people that were uniquely placed and involved in the providence of God's redemption plan, it's astounding. Matthew uh, is the bridge from... Old Testament to New Testament, but he's considered one of the four Gospels, one of the four Gospels in the New Testament. There's Matthew, there's Mark, there's Luke, and there's John. The first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I'm sure you may know, are known as the Synoptic Gospels because Synoptic simply means seen together. There is so much content between Matthew, Mark, and Luke that is so similar. John, on the other hand, is kind of off doing his own thing, um, has a very unique vantage point to want to communicate who God is and who Jesus is, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke are so similar. In fact, um, many of the parables, many of the teachings, many of the miracles are virtually seen across the board um, synonymously to where Matthew records it, Mark records it, Luke records it. They have different vantage point the same way that you might have a vantage point if you witnessed a, witness a, witness a crime being committed or an accident on the, on the road if they were to gather witness statements, you would have a different vantage point than another individual. Maybe you notice the the person who was, if it's a car accident, maybe you notice the person who was hit more than the person who hit them. Maybe you saw uh, what led up to the person being hit. Was there a stoplight that no one really uh, paid attention to? Um, Had it just turned from its glorious green to its really frustrating yellow and red and someone tried to beat it? But you will have a different vantage point on whatever's happening because you've seen certain things that other people might not. Can you, is there a possibility of seeing similar things that another individual, another witness saw? Yes, 100%. There's a large possibility, but you will see it in a different way, and it will um, come out to those who are trying to take all the witness statements probably a little bit differently than the other person that maybe even is closely related to you. So that's where we see the gospel writers. We see Matthew, we see Mark, we see Luke, we see John, each individual used by God to communicate and to preserve Holy Scripture for us. And in Matthew, he starts with the genealogy. He starts with those people who were strategically placed by God's providence 
to bring up, not just, from the, uh, not just from the Old Testament, but bring us to the fulfillment of the Old Testament, which is Christ himself. There are five uh, unique discourses uh, written about in Matthew, reflected in Mark and Luke, but in Matthew, the, he breaks it down into five different discourses of teaching and of activity following Jesus' life. Uh, the first one can be seen in Jesus' preparation for his ministry as he calls his disciples, as he calls the people who would follow him first, as he has his 40-day uh, his battle in the wilderness. Um, it's not really a battle when you know you're going to win, but he has his 40-day battle against the, the temptations of Satan in which every time he refers to the source of his strength, which is the very word of God itself, right? Before God ever ceases to speak in this intertestamental period between Malachi and Matthew, Old Testament to New Testament, Jesus continues to refer back to the Old Testament because Old Testament Scripture is just as much inspired and inerrant and infallible as New Testament Scripture. That's what he anchored it in. He is the fulfillment of all of that. So the next part of the discourse comes when Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount. Who among us is not necessarily, at least in some way, Uniquely un- understanding the Sermon on the Mount, right? Teaching us about the, the Beatitudes, right? Another great flannel graph, if, you, uh, if you've ever been in children's ministry. Um, the Beatitudes, blessed are those who fill in the blank. Teachings about love your enemies. Teaching about preserving the richness of the law, as well as its fulfillment within Christ, and taking it far beyond its legalistic premises that the, the Jewish leaders had reduced them to, basically. Another part of the discourse uh, began also when Jesus uh, started performing his miracles. Up until this point, the only miracles that were really performed were simply internal with Christ. His 40 days of temptation, the baptism of, of Christ, his calling of individuals, and now he begins his actual miracles that are visibly and experientially received. Uh, things such as bringing dead people back to life, healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, healing those who are, who are paralyzed. Um, interesting thing enough, the writer of Matthew includes his calling in this period of miracles. I don't think that's necessarily a coincidence. I do 100% see that Matthew, when he refers to himself in chapter 9 as the tax collector, a person who would have been ridiculed, mocked, and abhorred by the Jewish people for their companionship and their, their chosen desire to be involved in the extortion of Rome's empire on the Jewish people, he would have been somebody that no one really necessarily enjoyed being around, or at least had some very strong prejudice against. And he includes his calling, he includes his inclusion as one of the disciples, as one of the apostles, within the area of Jesus performing miracles. Don't think that that's coincidence. And then Jesus gets into his commissioning of the apostles, commissioning of uh, the individuals to go out and to begin proclaiming the good news. And then we arrive at our text with the parables. This is one of uh, the two that we just read a moment ago are two of eight parables that he wants, to, wants people to know, wants his disciples and the people around him to know, to hear. Because... Parables have a unique way of being able to penetrate even sometimes the most stubborn or unimaginative heart. 
Parables are meant to communicate the truth of a heavenly purpose in a very uniquely understood, very common earthly perspective. So when we see here in Matthew 13, the disciple Matthew recording Jesus' words about the kingdom of heaven, Matthew was a Jewish man. Matthew was heavily, heavily involved in his Jewish upbringing, his Jewish heritage, and was a, was a good Jew. He knew his heritage. That's why he starts off in Matthew chapter 1, tracing Jesus' messiahship, his lordship, his anointedness, all the way back to the forefathers of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Matthew wants it to be very clear from the very beginning of his writing all the way up until now and, and, and all the way through that Jesus is the Christ. Christ is simply a Greek word. It's a Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, which is the anointed one, the one whom God had established all the way back in the Old Testament to be the one who would come, would redeem his people, and would establish a true undying kingdom. That's why he uses words such as the kingdom of heaven. This is a unique to Matthew. In fact, these two parables are unique to Matthew. Again, you might see certain things at a, at a car wreck. You might be a witness of certain events that might be different or similar in some cases than somebody else may see, but this was uniquely important to Matthew, these parables, especially about the hidden treasure. Could it be that he was very financially savvy being a tax collector? It could be. Could it be that he had uh, a lot of experience and a lot of um, work that dealt with people's treasures, whether it was in legitimate use or legitimate means or, or, or not before he was called by Christ? We don't know. But this is something that was stood out to Matthew when it came to him hearing and preserving Jesus' life and Jesus' ministry. And he uses terminology like kingdom of heaven. It's a very very Jewish thing to do. Uh, if you're coming to Sunday school with us, Pastor Greg has been leading you through the book of Daniel. And in the book of Daniel, we've seen several times the, the use of the, the language kingdom of heaven because it refers to the kingdom that God would establish through David, which Matthew picks up on and highlights that as well. But Daniel is uh, speaking of a kingdom that will never fail, a kingdom that will never end a kingdom that will go far beyond any, any enemy of Israel, any enemy of God's people. Daniel chapter 2, verse 37. It says, You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into who, whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them, you are the head of gold. He's referring to the king at the time, the earthly king, Nebuchadnezzar. You are this king. But you only have your rule, you only have your temporary time as the, the, the kingdom leader here because God gave it to you to begin with. The God of heaven has given you this kingdom. Later on, uh, when Nebuchadnezzar is brought to his lowest point and finally realizes and his eyes are finally opened to who God truly is, he says this, Daniel chapter 4, verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. 
How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Heavily Jewish language of kingdom of heaven. It is synonymous, though, with the words kingdom of God. In fact, they are used interchangeably several times throughout the Gospels. So when we see here that Matthew wants us to understand the kingdom of heaven, what is the kingdom of heaven? What is the kingdom of God? Because many of us, and we actually brought this up with our students just a few weeks ago, many of us would probably consider a a location, a, 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 a geographical coordinate on a map. Right? We've seen movies. We've seen uh, C.S. Lewis movies, Chronicles of Narnia, right? Uh, we've seen, you know, red books like The Lord of the Rings, The Kingdom, that kind of thing. If you haven't, they're great books to read. Um, other things such as The Kingdom, we, 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 we've heard about. We've heard about the, the process of kings, lords, masters, ladies, the Renaissance, Romanticism, all these kinds of things that tend to only bring to mind when we think about a kingdom in terms of an earthly plot of land. But when Jesus teaches the disciples to pray in one of the discourses mentioned earlier in Matthew chapter 6, he prays this, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, this darn microphone, on earth as it is in heaven. Is it simply a physical place. Well, we know that that's partly true. God does not reign in a vacuum. He does not reign in this nebulous nothingness. He reigns in a spiritual kingdom that is beyond our comprehension at this point. And one day he will return. We're studying Pastor Greg's leading us through 1 Thessalonians. I've been trying to Encourage him to continue into Second Thessalonians. So that's that's up to him, though. We've been seeing in First Thessalonians the the day that the Lord comes. Do you realize that that day God will return to what He has created because He's not done with what He's created. He created it, therefore it is valuable. It is valuable to Him. That's why the dead in Christ will rise and be reunited with their with their with their spiritual souls. He's not done with the physical. So yes, in a sense, the kingdom of heaven does have a physical component, but that's all the Jewish people were were caught up in. Through the leadership and through the hard-heartedness of the Israelite people, all throughout the Old Testament, there was this roller coaster of praising God, treasuring God above all else, and then denying Him with our words, denying Him with our actions, seeing the consequences that are brought upon, brought upon by it, right? So God finally sends the prophets. Well, what do we do with the prophets? We, they maybe kind of listen to them a little bit. The only people, I think it's really interesting, the only people who truly listened to the prophets 100% were the people that the prophet did not want to even go to. The individual I'm talking about is the man who spent three days in the belly of a fish. And the people he went to he didn't even want to go to. When he gets there, he's really frustrated. God, why in the world would you spare them and not do what you've done to these other people? But I digress. We see Israel constantly up and down, up and down, treasure, treasuring God, forsaking God. Treasuring God, forsaking God. So when we see 
the kingdom of heaven being something that they were only physically minded to understand, we have things like in the book of Luke, when Jesus, after appearing to the two people on the road to Emmaus and goes and uh, interacts with the disciples, or sorry, uh, before he interacts with the disciples, he's on the road to Emmaus, and the people don't even know who he is. He's, he's concealed himself from them and from their understanding, and he's asking these questions about what's going on, what's going on. So they're confused. Why in the world? Who, where have you been? Have you been living under a rock? Did you not hear that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified? And he was supposed to be the person that would bring the kingdom of God. He was supposed to restore the kingdom to Israel. That's what, the, that's what the Pharisees were looking forward to. That's why when John chapter 1, even though John's off kind of doing his own thing, uh, in John chapter 1 it says that Jesus came into his own and his own did not receive him because he did not match their desired Messiah. Matthew doesn't want to leave any stone unturned when it comes to the fulfillment and the concealment of Christ, the Messiah in the Old Testament, and the fulfillment of him now. Here's how you can even see who he is. Go all the way back to Abraham. And in Jewish circles, Matthew was very aware of this, you don't touch the top three. You don't touch Abraham. You don't touch Moses. You don't touch David. Two of those individuals, Abraham and David, are listed in Jesus' genealogy that Matthew records for us. Matthew wants it to be very evident. This is the Messiah. He has not just come to establish a physical kingdom. That is not what he is about right now. Once the full consummation of all things, the redemptive plan of God has come to a conclusion, that is when the physical kingdom will be restored. In fact, he's going to wipe away all of what has been tainted and destroyed and decimated by sin, and he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. But for now, Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is like this. What do you say it's like? It's like a treasure hidden in a field. Verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is a treasure, especially when we understand why. And why on earth would Jesus try to communicate through this parable the worth of the kingdom? The kingdom is so valuable this treasure in this field, and yet it almost seems as though based on, I don't know, I don't want to say luck because luck does not exist, but based on divine providence, this man comes across it. It says a man found it in this field. Now, it was not uncommon for Jewish people to want to preserve, protect, and to conceal their valuables to bury them. Anybody have like a whole bunch of like Money, um, buried, treasures buried. Uh, This is not a Pirates of the Caribbean-esque situation. This is not buried treasure that someone wanted to make an elaborate scavenger hunt to find. It was not uncommon for people because uh, banks, formal banks, secure banks did not exist. Uh, Depositories were sometimes corrupt. You have people like tax collectors who might uh, either find them and assess their value and give it to Rome just to appease them and to get a, a, a large kickback because of it. But people would bury their possessions. In fact, if you, uh, I read one commentator that said, if you read 
I actually have the book. It was really exciting for me because I actually had the book. I'm like, oh my goodness, I actually have this book of antiquity. If you read the Jewish historian uh, Josephus, Flavius Josephus, anybody want to name their newborn son Flavius? Flavius, right? Flavius Josephus. He was a first century Jewish historian who actually wrote about this in his book, The The Wars of the Jews. In fact, to, to avoid enemies coming into Jerusalem, besieging the land and taking their possessions, they would bury them. So that later, if the, if the war uh, ends or if they're taken captive, they can come back at some point and retrieve their, their, their belongings. Uh, wealth, money, um, uh, jewelry, uh, clothes, uh, furniture. So you know, we, we've heard about the preservation of food being underground to keep it cool and to, to uh, season it with salt and preserve meat and those kinds of things. But it's also something that they used for protecting their valuable things. And what I've come to find out through, through examining this text is that many people think that this is kind of a dishonest way in which that the man went about getting the treasure. I don't know if that has ever come to your mind, but what in the world is going on? Is, is Jesus advocating for some kind of unethical dealing about this man just covering up a treasure and then like secretly going off and making this deal? Well, here's a few things that we need to consider. First thing, the owner of the field before obviously had no idea that that treasure was buried in that field to begin with. Because why would that person bury something so valuable to him and then go off and leave it and want nothing to do with it? It's actually a, it's actually a, a, a poor uh, Jewish practice to have something so valuable and then to treat it like garbage. So it's obviously did not, did not, did not belong to the man who owned the field before, it's obvious, uh, based on this, that uh, Jewish law uh, didn't dictate that an individual um, who found something of great worth, uh, but this person found something that someone else cared about, it wasn't their responsibility to scour the globe to try and find who it belonged to. Jewish law says that if it's something of great value, you, you keep it, you, you record it, you, you remember, you make a map for yourself and remember where in the world did you plant that? You know, sweetheart, where's our jewelry? Oh, it's in the backyard somewhere. Do you know where you planted it? Do you know where you dug it, uh, put it in the ground? No. Well, nothing I can do for you. Jewish law didn't dictate you go scour the globe because you also run into the risk of someone saying, oh yeah, that's that's mine. You find a dollar on the sidewalk, try to find someone who it belongs to, you go to the first person that says, hey, did you lose a dollar? Yeah! Right? I'm not saying that's all people, but it's, it's, the, it's the potential. It's the possibility. So if this person, this individual who owned the land didn't care enough to bring the treasure with them, he was not re- required, this man was not required to scour the globe to find out who it belonged to. All he knew was the value of the treasure he found. So much so, to the third thing that we can understand, that this is not an unethical thing that he did, is because he did all that was legally required to possess it. He went and found somebody who was at least overseeing the land itself, and apparently that landowner, the, whether it was a, a trust, or whether it was um, through like the, the government, or whatever it may be, um, they had no record of the man who lived there before them that had buried the treasure. So in this case, Finders, keepers, losers, weavers. But the man didn't steal it. His, his covering it is not trying to conceal it the way that 
Abel, or the way that Cain tried to conceal Abel. No, his covering it was not because of trying to conceal something. His covering it was a statement of how valuable it really was. What we can, what we can pull out of this, his covering of this treasure, was that this is too valuable. The person who comes after me might not treat it like that. They won't see it for what it really is. The amazing thing, though, is the supreme value, this is the first truth that I want us to, to take away from this, the supreme value of the treasure is what motivated this man's total sacrifice. The first thing, the supreme value of the treasure motivated this man's total sacrifice. The treasure has to be substantial for Jesus to say that in his joy, he went and sold everything he had just so that he could have that. Just so that he could own the field that it was buried in. It was worth it to him. He sacrificed everything. Nothing mattered. Nothing mattered more to him than having and possessing that treasure. There are two avenues that you can go down in this way to, to assess the supreme value of this. I don't know if you are a, a broker. I don't know if you have any kind of financial um, you know, abilities or, or whatever, but I'm going to teach you a little bit about appraising something. All right? You can appraise this in one of two ways. You can appraise it based on the man's sacrifice, or you can appraise it based on the extent of his sacrifice. Here's what I mean by that. Many people, when they hear this parable, may have the tendency to want to exalt and to, to credit the sacrifice to the treasure's value. That man, you gave everything, right? It was the, it was the man's ability to, to go and to sell all he had. He must have had a lot of things to, to purchase that. He must have had a, a great you know, wealth to have found such a, such a supreme treasure to give everything for it. That, that, that is just amazing. Good, good for you. That's awesome. And so if you take this avenue and you inject the treasure's value based upon his sacrifice, you've misappropriated the true nature of this parable. Because it's not the man's sacrifice that's what gave it wealth, that's what gave it its value. The other avenue that you need to go down is to see the extent of his sacrifice was the intrinsic value of that treasure. We see that echoed again in verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like this, a merchant in search of fine pearls. Pearls are a beautiful thing. They're a very rare thing because of the process in which to get a pearl. I don't know how it works, but they come from oysters. I don't get it, but that's amazing, right? There's a lot. You have to live somewhere around the coast. You have to travel up and down coasts. You have to be in the know with individuals. This merchant, this person, this wholesale dealer, wholesale dealer, this person has been become very good at what he does, or else he wouldn't be someone who has enough things to buy this pearl of one great value. But this merchant has been searching for pearls his entire life. That's part of what he does. Does he have a family? I don't know. That's not part of the story. That's not part of the parable. The merchant is in search of fine pearls, who on finding 
one pearl of great value. It had to have been a miraculous, immaculate, priceless pearl in comparison to all the other ones that he had come in contact with before. Why? Because of what it says that he did to get the pearl. He went and he sold all that he had to buy it. In his experience, in his collection, in his wealth, this is a very lucrative, uh, this is a very lucrative industry. One, because of the value of the pearl, also, not many people know how much a pearl is valued at, so you can kind of set it wherever you like. But again, there's no dishonesty or there's no unethical nature of these two stories. It's simply showing us it's not, the, it's not what the man, the merchant, or the man and the treasure, that's not what he gave that gave the treasure its value. It's how much the treasure was already valued, which brought the total sacrifice of these two people to give everything for it. That above all else, this was already to be treasured and prized above everything, every material thing that he could possibly have. He wanted that more than anything else. The second truth that we can learn from these two, these two stories, these two men, is that the material significance of the treasure the material significance of the treasure gave this man, these two men total security. Why else would it say that he, in his joy, went and gave everything that he had for just this treasure? You don't sell everything you have just to go into bankruptcy. That's not being a good steward of the things that God has graciously gifted you. But this thing, this treasure, this fine, this one great pearl was so valuable. Just to possess it gave the man eternal security. Third truth, the sufficiency of the treasure gave this man total satisfaction. He didn't want anything else. Nothing else was a part of the deal. He bought the field simply because that's where the treasure was buried. And I'll do whatever I can just to possess the treasure. This man, get, the, the, the merchant, gave everything that he had, everything that he had earned, maybe even his reputation as a connoisseur of fine pearls. All of a sudden, he's ditching all of that because of one pearl? And I'm sure he's trying to convince his pearl merchant buddies, no, you don't understand. You don't understand. You, you don't just seeing how magnificent this great pearl is, seeing the value that it already possesses was what motivated me to give up everything. It's what brought me security it was sufficient. It has given me total satisfaction. I don't want anything else. What's the truth that Jesus is trying to communicate about the kingdom of heaven? That the kingdom of heaven is not a place. It is a person. 
the kingdom of heaven and heaven itself in all of its riches, all of its glory, all of its streets paved with gold, all of the, the things that result from being in heaven, no more crying, no more, no more war, no more all of these things, none of that means anything. If the treasure of heaven isn't there. The treasure of heaven, the treasure of the kingdom, is God himself. It is Christ. It is the Messiah who has come, who has laid down his life willingly to purchase for his people salvation. But it will cost you. It will cost you. The kingdom of heaven is Christ. The supreme value of Christ is what motivates total sacrifice. That above all else, whether you esteem him as Lord or not, whether you confess him as Lord or not, doesn't matter. He already is Lord. Philippians 2 tells us that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What makes the treasure so valuable to people like you and to people like me is understanding that this treasure has not been something that we can purchase for ourselves. But it is a treasure that has already been purchased to the greatest extent. It is a treasure that is valued beyond anything you could ever possibly offer to the appraiser. I've heard some people, one person in particular, who said that Christ dying on the cross was heaven's way of going bankrupt for my soul. No. Heaven did not go bankrupt just to get you back. Here's the way that the Trinity works. God, in eternity past, showed his love to the Son by giving his Son a specific people. The Son shows his love for the Father by coming to earth willingly, trading places with the, with the wicked, with the sinful, trades his righteousness out of love for the Father to purchase for the Father those people that he has already given to the Son. And the Spirit shows love to the Father and to the Son by sealing the individual with a stamp that cannot be earned, with a stamp that cannot be handed out based upon what you've given, but based upon the work of Christ. The treasure of heaven is the presence of Christ in the individual. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, Father, your will be done, your kingdom come within the individuals who recognize and submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. The supreme value of Christ motivates total sacrifice. The eternal significance of Christ brings 
the eternal significance of Christ, brings total security to the believer. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you go through. It does matter to God, but it does not matter in comparison to who God is. Let me tell you why. In Matthew chapter 10, you can read about this also in, in the book of Luke, um, communicates very similar. But in Matthew chapter 10, here's what Jesus says of himself about what it will cost. Matthew 10, 34. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set man against father, daughter against mother, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Nobody snicker at that. A person's enemies will be those of his own household. Why? Why? Because whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Someone who loves things on this earth more than the one who has given it to them does not understand the treasure that they have just come across. They certainly will not understand what it costs to possess it. And whoever loves son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever takes, who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Sounds an awful lot like in his joy when he found this treasure, he went and made every possible transaction to possess it. We cannot purchase salvation, but when we truly understand the truth of who God is, the truth of what he has said and what he has done and who we are in light of who he is and what he has said and what he has done, we see the treasure for what it is. Being more valuable than anything else we could ever possibly possess. And I will give anything, I will do anything to maintain this treasure. I will, this treasure is too valuable. This treasure is too valuable. I'm not, I'm not proclaiming works-based righteousness. What I am proclaiming is that for the Christian who understands the supreme value and the eternal significance of the treasure of the kingdom of heaven will live in such a way to where that treasure is the most valuable thing to them above all else. Because the sufficiency of the treasure brings total satisfaction. Christ satisfies. The testimony of Christ being treasured above all else is part of the spiritual heritage that you and I have. The spiritual heritage throughout all of Christian history is, shines so brightly in the men and women who have treasured Christ above all else to the point of sealing that treasure with their own blood.
For the disciples, only one of them died a natural death. The rest were executed and tortured beyond belief. But when the supreme value of the treasure, when the eternal significance of the treasure, and when the sufficiency of that treasure is rightly understood, nothing else matters, not even my own life. And I will give everything for this treasure. I have nothing that compares to the price of it. Thomas Watson, an early Puritan, said that God's glory shines in the ashes of his martyrs. And there are all throughout Christian history people who have treasured Christ above all else and paid for it and sealed that treasure with their own blood. So, where does that leave us? Do you have to be martyred? You don't have to be martyred. But do you treasure anything in this life above Christ? Is anything to you more valuable than Christ? Does anything add to the value of Christ? That also begins to get tricky. When you face affliction and suffering, persecution, the death of a child, a spouse's terminal diagnosis, the loss of your means to provide for your family, when you face being forsaken and betrayed by your closest friend, when you're feeling overwhelmed to the point to where you just want to crawl back into the old man for which Christ has died, into the filth of your former self, you need to remember what these two men did that above everything else, the treasure totally satisfies. The treasure is worth more than I could ever give, but this is what I have to give. This is all I have to give. And if we truly do claim that Jesus is all to us, how does that motivate us to tell others about this treasure? Where does that leave us? How do we understand the, the, the unique value of the treasure? Because here's the thing. People want to find the treasure and then stop. The tendency for so many people is to find the treasure, conceal it after purchasing it. After they've given everything for it. Lord, you are the one true God. I submit to your lordship. I praise your name for purchasing my pardon on Calvary. But it's too much for me to share with someone else. Well, I don't know what to say. I don't know if I'll be able to have a response 
for what they say. If I try to tell them about how valuable this treasure is, what if they, what if they decide that the treasure isn't that valuable? What if they determine for themselves that it's, it's, it's nothing more than, than cubic zirconium? But again, it's not the sacrifice that validated the treasure's value. It displayed how valuable it already is. Lastly, Matthew chapter 16. Jesus goes on and explains even more so what it means and what it will cost those who follow Jesus. But, but, not just what it will cost, but what will be received and the worth of pursuing Christ above all else. Jesus told his disciples, chapter 16, verse 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? You can fill your life with all of the material riches that your flesh and the world and the enemy could possibly present to you, and at the very end of your life, you say, look, Lord, look at all I have. His words to you will be a big deal. What shall a man give in return for his soul? Verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So what is the cure? It is a saving knowledge of Christ. Saving knowledge of who he is based on how he has revealed himself what he has done, what he is like. And then who we are in light of who he is. God is holy. We are not. God is good. We are not. And we can lie to ourselves all day that we are. But even our most righteous good things that we could ever possibly present to God at the end of our lives and say, look, Lord, look what I did. It's nothing more than filthy rags. It does not even register on the scale of value compared to who Christ truly is. Jesus does not say that in Luke chapter 14, hate your father, hate your mother, because he wants to cause division and unnecessary hatred. No, he's saying, based on what we, we saw in Matthew chapter 10, if anyone loves this more than me is not worthy of me. The amazing thing is, the saving knowledge of Christ has been communicated throughout all time. It was there in the law. It was there in the garden. 
God gave humanity the gospel, the good news of Christ, of the treasure of heaven, when he told the serpent, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. And then he gives the innocent skins of an animal to cover their shame and their nakedness. What possible picture of the gospel could be any clearer? That the righteousness of Christ would be imputed to us and our sins, our sins are then imputed to him in this double exchange of righteousness. Because John 3.16, the most valuable, not valuable, the most famous, well-known verse in the Bible, it says that for God so loved the world, how did he love this world so much? By sending his one and only son, the only one who could possibly satisfy the law. And when they didn't obey the law, he sent judges, but even those judges were corrupt. Some of them followed God's standard, and some of them held Israel to the, to the standard that they should be, but so many of them did whatever they wanted and did what was evil in their own sight, so God gave them the prophets. And the prophets proclaimed that if you will turn from your sinfulness, if you turn from your wicked ways, God is rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love towards you. And anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. They didn't like that. It threatened their material possessions and their material understanding of things. So they killed the prophets. And then there was silence for years. But it did not distract or deter God's redemptive plan to bring the treasure from heaven to us. Jesus stepped out of heaven. The second person of the Trinity stepped into his creation, lived the life that you never could, that I never could, and died the death that I so rightly deserve. And he sent his one and only son that whoever, not just whoever, but whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. The good news of the gospel becomes a treasure to us when we see how horrible our fate truly is apart from him. And the extent that he went to to purchase for the Father the people that were already given to him and that the, the Holy Spirit would seal for all eternity and to give total security to is what we have to rest in. We can rest with total security. We can, we can say, just like uh, we just recently celebrated Reformation. I'll finish with this. We re recently celebrated Reformation Day. If you don't know what that is, I, I encourage you next year to, or even today, um, challenge yourself and find out not just about Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a man. He was not, a, he was not Christ. Um, he was a man. He had, his, he had his failures and his flaws. Um, men like John Calvin, um, several others, John Knox. But before that ever happened, before those men ever came, there were men like John Wycliffe and John Huss who began to raise and to, to shout that people like you, like me, should have the ability to know this treasure and to know him intimately. Intimately. 
by reading about how he's revealed himself. And when Christ becomes the treasure, when you see how vastly superior his value is compared to everything you have, you can do what John Huss did who was being charged with heresy and burned at the stake because he proclaimed that people should be allowed to read about Jesus for themselves. And he sealed his testimony with his own blood. He was burned at the stake. But people, it is recorded for us in, John, in Fox's Book of Martyrs. I encourage every Christian to, to, to read that. But it's recorded for us that as the flames began to engulf his body, he sang about the treasure of heaven. He began singing hymns until he no longer could because the flames had paralyzed his vocal cords. And then he passed into eternity to where the fullness of this treasure was revealed to him. You and I, as born-again believers, if you are a born-again believer, we have a rich heritage of men and women who have treasured Christ above all else and were willing to trade their own lives for it. Martyrdom might not be something that's in your future but are you willing, are you ready to submit fully to the Lordship of Christ if that's what it costs you? Are you willing to, to submit to the Lordship of Christ if it causes division amongst your own family? Jesus did not come to bring peace. He came to bring a sword to separate. Truthfully and distinctly, his people whom he has purchased out of love for the Father. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17 tells us that when before Jesus began his actual ministry, he began to preach the gospel. And the gospel was this repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All that we have just talked about, all that we have just seen about the treasure of the kingdom of heaven. Christ calls every person to repent. To repent and to come to a saving knowledge of who God is. Confess Jesus as not just Savior, but as Lord. Repent means to turn from your sin. To put your faith solely, only in Him. Yes, it may cost you Everything. It'll cost you your future. It'll cost you your plans and your goals and sometimes maybe even your family. But the value of the treasure is infinitely worth it. We don't come to Christ because of what he can give us. We come to Christ because he is the treasure of the kingdom of heaven. Would you please bow with me? Oh Lord, forgive us. Lord, forgive us. for trying to add anything to you. Lord, you've blessed us. Every born-again believer, or at least every, every person in this room with a conscience can see the way that you have blessed us. And for us who are your children, John 1.12, those who saw you and trusted you, you gave them the right to become children of God. 
not because of whatever they earned, not because of whatever they, they had to offer you, but because they repented of their sins and they put their faith and their trust in you and in you alone because you are more valuable than anything that we could possibly fill our lives with. You are more valuable even in the face of everything that we value in life being stripped away from us. And that we can, like Job, say when we've lost virtually everything, though you slay me, still I will praise your name. Because you are more valuable than anything else in my life. In fact, you're more valuable than my life itself. May we shine brightly with the men and women throughout Christian history who have stood for the glory of your Son in the power of the Spirit and for the fame of your Father to make known to all people the treasure that has come and the treasure that will be fully realized when he comes back. We praise you. We thank you. If there be any person in this room who upon hearing the word of God proclaimed and need to repent of their sins and put their trust in you and in you alone because of how valuable you truly are, I pray that they would not wait. I pray that they would come find me. I pray that they would stick around a little bit afterwards to, to, to talk, whatever it may be. But to you be the glory that you so rightly deserve. And all God's people said,